0: Please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much. It is an honor to be back. Uh, it seems like I was here fairly recently, so I'm hoping you're not getting tired of me yet. And, uh, and I also want to thank you for your enthusiastic support of the work that we're doing in New England. And uh, uh, we give you greetings from Christ Memorial Church. Uh, We give you greetings from the New England Training and Sending Center in the People's Republic of Vermont. And uh, we are excited to continue to work as your missionaries to bring the Gospel to the least evangelized region of our country. And so we thank you for your prayers, and we thank you for your support. And I thank you for this service today. You know, I grew up in a very, very liberal Presbyterian church. It was a a very formal Presbyterian church and every Sunday they had a full chancel choir, an organ that resonated like this organ. Sometimes there were four choirs on a given Sunday and I just got used to that kind of service and I love the stops pulled out of the organ and singing at the top of our lungs. I love the contemporary worship as well but this has been a real treat. So thank you for scheduling this particular Sunday for me to preach. I really appreciate that. Well let me open up in a word of prayer. Father we are thankful to come today. We are thankful to gather, to hear your word. We know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to penetrate down into the depths of our souls. We need it to do that today. We're asking you to use the frailty and feebleness of preaching and of this preacher to do an eternal work in our hearts. We thank you for this time. We thank you most of all for your son. We pray in His name. Amen. Many years ago there was a fairly popular gospel tract entitled How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. It was a good tract. But after nearly 50 years of ministry, if I could go back and reorient that tract and retitled it, I'd call it this, How to Have a Holy and Heaven-Bound Life, and then I'd subtitle it, The Only Life That is Truly Happy. Now that's not very pithy, and I'm sure it wouldn't have been as popular, but certainly it's more to the point of the Bible. And what would be the punchline? To that tract, how to have a holy and heaven-bound life, which is the only life that is truly happy. What would be the punchline to that non-pithy title? Biblical hope. Biblical hope. The key to both holiness and heaven is biblical hope which is to be distinguished from mere wishful thinking. I came to Christ at The Ohio State University. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I am wishing with all my heart that Ohio State beats Michigan this year. But it's wishful thinking, isn't it? In fact, I'm pretty nervous about that game, to be honest with you. Well, this morning, I want to do something of a biblical theology on the topic of biblical hope. That's very different than the way we often use the word hope. And yes, there'll be some tough, sermonic slogging. You're going to be tempted to take a little nap, you know, because this is going to go till about 2 o'clock. So somewhere around lunchtime, you're going to be saying, I'm a little tired right now. And yes... I'm going to challenge you to repent of non biblical hopes. They're really idols. And that's going to be tough. But I'm convinced that the Word of God teaches that the key to holiness and the key to heaven, and yes, to a happy life both now and forever. Is biblical hope and so I'm inviting you to join me this morning to examine this biblical hope and we'll start with our need for that hope by turning to Ephesians chapter 2 would you turn with me in your Bibles Ephesians chapter 2 most of these passages will be familiar but maybe the way that I'm stitching them together will be different Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 just two verses It says therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise And then it's this last phrase. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's the description of every unbeliever. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pitiful state to be in, isn't it? A place without a hope in the world or we could say without any meaningful and reliable and lasting hope, having only fleeting hopes that ultimately disappoint. That's where we were in Adam, isn't it? We were all born into a hopeless state because of our sin, because of the penalty for our sin, which we justly deserved. But God took pity on us, didn't he? He took pity on us. He was kind to us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me. I'm sorry, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, and I'll read from verses 3 to verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Our God is to be blessed. He is to be praised Because in his great mercy, he caused you and I, who know Jesus Christ, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. Dear one, when you truly believed in Jesus Christ, God in his mercy caused you to be born to hope, born again to a living hope, to a future inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And it's an inheritance that's so grand, it's so beautiful, it's so eternally glorious that all the difficulties and all the afflictions and all the sufferings of this present age are not even worthy. They're not even worthy. It's silly. It's stupid to even compare those difficulties with the glory with the glory to be revealed. That's what Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? A day is coming when our faith shall be sight. And that's the inheritance, the the living hope to which we were born again. Now, for us to get a better look at this hope, we want to examine some of its particulars let's start and this is where some of the heavy slogging comes in so stick with me let's start with the nature of this hope it's such a it's such an abstract idea isn't it it's kind of hard to get your head around biblical hope but maybe this will help most of you know Hebrews chapter 11 the Lord's speaking to me there I'm not sure I'll try to be more attentive. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. What does it say? Now faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right in faith's defini- definition is the notion of hope. Not only the word hope, but the future orientation, which is the orientation of hope. Like faith, hope vanishes and will vanish when we finally see Jesus face to face. You don't hope in that which you've received, that which you see. Maybe we could describe hope as the point of the spear of faith. Maybe we could say it's the driver of faith. Maybe we could say it's the dominant component of faith. Maybe we could say it's the climax of faith. Maybe we could say that really hope is the essence of faith but whatever you say hope is of the same phylum and species face faith it's something to be realized in the not yet and in the meantime it's something to be strengthened over this time on earth that's its nature but what is its grounding now this one is a bit more complicated and takes in a large section of Romans chapter 5 through 8. I'm asking the question, what is the thing that grounds that supports that actually gives us a reason, a sound reason to have biblical hope? Now, we've not we don't have the time to read Romans chapters 5 through 8. So I want to read some selected portions and I want to start by framing Romans 5 through 8 with a short section in Romans 5 at the beginning and a short section of Romans 8 at the end. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Hang with me and let's read verses 1 to 11. Romans 5, 1 to 11. I think this is the uh, introduction and the beginning of the framing of this whole section, Romans 5 through 8. I see you're starting to go through Romans uh, this week, the, or the, this year, with the men's study. Did I read that right? On the uh, on the board, well, I'd like to come back just for that. That sounds like a lot of fun. But Romans five one through eight, uh, one through eleven. Let me just read that to you. Paul says, "Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God." There it is. We just got the hope idea. When you think of Romans, you don't usually think that there's much in it about hope. There's a lot in Romans about hope. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more that's hope language right there much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if we were enemies For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, looking to the future, now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you see how central hope is to this section of the book of Romans? And it doesn't end. Go to Romans chapter 8. In fact, you know that probably the end of Romans chapter 8 is read more frequently at funerals than any other passage. You know, who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? We want to hear that assurance of hope. Listen to what he says. I'll pick it up in verse 18. This is the the bookend of this section. Paul says, For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you see the centrality of hope? That... Glory to be revealed produces this chorus of groaning with creation and believers and even the Spirit, all groaning for that hope. Romans 5 through 8 is about hope. You see, false teachers were teaching and would probably soon be teaching as Jews who had been exiled were now coming back to Rome after Claudius' death. These false teachers were teaching that the hope contained in God's promises was fulfilled through a righteousness that comes by keeping the works of the law. That's what they were teaching, a law-based justification. But Paul pushes back, teaching that the hope that is contained in God's promises, that hope, That hope of life, of eternal life, that hope is fulfilled only through the righteousness which comes by faith. The righteousness that comes apart from the works of the law. But of course, the question is, and the criticism was, does that righteousness by faith actually produce righteousness of character? That was the tension. Shall we not continue to sin so that grace might increase? That's the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 6. And this is Paul's point in that section that is bookended by Romans 5, 1 to 11 and 8, 18 to 39. The question that Paul is addressing is that the righteousness which is by faith alone, does in fact produce a real righteousness. It produces a real transformation. And here's why. When you believe in Christ, when you have faith in Christ, what happens? You're joined to Christ. You're joined to Christ in his death. And that means his death is your death. And he died to sin. So when you're joined to Christ by faith, you're died to sins Power, and you're died to the law, which was the source of that power. And so Paul is arguing, he's arguing that this hope is secure because the righteousness which comes by faith alone actually does transform. That's the basis. See, if I say, well, I've got a hope of heaven, and yet my character isn't transformed, I'm self-deceived. For no one shall see the Lord without holiness, right? There has to be real transformation, not by works, but by the work of Christ, which we apprehend by faith. So the believer's hope is grounded really in Romans 5 through 8 in the believer's transformation. My hope of deliverance from sin's presence in the future is grounded in. The deliverance from sin's power in the present. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? How do I know that my hope is secure? Because I've already tasted its first fruits. Do you see it? I've already experienced an inaugurated hope. We could call it that. I've already experienced deliverance from sin's penalty. Yes. I've already experienced deliverance from sin's power. Yes. Then how much more can I be sure? that I will finally be delivered from sin's debilitating presence. Yes, amen, amen. To say it another way, we are certain of the consummation of our salvation at Jesus' return because we've already experienced the mighty inaugural power of that salvation. We are new creatures in Christ. We could say that together. I'm a new creature in Christ. And as a result, I have a certain hope. I've already received the down payment. It's just a matter of time before the everything's paid off. Right? That's the mindset. And that hope, which is grounded in real transformation, which is grounded in an already deliverance from sin's power, That hope drives the entire process of sanctification. That hope drives my pursuit of holiness. In fact, let me show you how that works. Turn to Titus chapter 2. We're into the weeds a little bit. Hang in there. Only two hours more. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Paul says this beginning in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is the anatomy of grace? The grace of God has appeared. Or to ask it this way, what is the mechanism by which grace trains us to deny sin and trains us to live righteously? How is it that we are finally redeemed from lawlessness? The key is verse 14, waiting for our blessed hope or looking for our blessed hope or expecting our blessed hope. You see, by looking and waiting and expecting the blessed hope of Christ's appearing, we are transformed. That's the process. You see how powerful hope is? Or another passage, the passage that's in your bulletin, 1 John chapter 3. Some of you can relate to this if you've had to teach teenage drivers. One of the most fearful things you'll ever do. In fact, I can tell you that my wife, and we have five kids, we have 17 grandkids, we love kids, most of the time we loved our own kids. But she said, I'm not, I'm not getting in the car with them. She just declared a moratorium. She knew I was her head, we are, we believe in traditional marriage, but this is one time where she took charge. She said, I'm not getting in the car with those teenagers, you're going to have to teach them how to drive. And, you know, what is it that's scary? about teenagers driving, aside from the fact that they don't know how to drive. Um, it's the difficulty in recognizing you have to keep your eyes forward, looking ahead. You can't be playing with the MP3 player or your phone. You know, what happens, now you adults, you don't need to confess here. You can. Go home and confess to your spouse and then call Pastor Grant and confess to him during this week because you're looking at your phone while you're driving. But what happens when you do that? I've never done it, but I've watched other people do it. Um, What happens when you do that? You take your eyes. If your phone's over here, you take your eyes over here. And what happens to the car? It kind of goes over there, doesn't it? I mean, how many times have you experienced that? You know, suddenly you're a little off the freeway. It's like, "Er," you know, I admit it. I know what it's like, like, "Er," that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. You see, this hope is like looking forward when you're driving. You have to keep your eyes focused ahead. And 1 John 3 helps us with that. 1 John 3, let me pick it up in verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are now children, God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see him as he is that's our problem right now we see through a mirror dimly we can't see jesus clearly we can see him but our vision is still distorted by the presence of sin look what he says verse 3 and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who hopes in seeing Jesus just as he is, that's looking right down the middle of the alley. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, makes himself holy, is being transformed into a holy person just as Jesus is holy. You see, it's all about our vision. Sanctification is all about what we're looking at, what we're gazing at, what we're really hoping in. Of course, I've already segued to my next point because what's the focus of hope? The nature of hope is that it's The essence of faith, that's what I've suggested. The grounding of hope is that we've already experienced its inauguration. But the focus of hope is unambiguously Jesus Christ. He's the focus of our hope. Biblical hope has its focus only on Christ. You know Hebrews chapter 12. It tells us that the way that we run the race of endurance, that is, the way that we persevere in our faith, the way that we don't turn away, is by what? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of God. Second Corinthians chapter three says that we now have unveiled faces. We were veiled; we couldn't see God. But when we turned to Christ in faith, the veil was removed, and now with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? That's Christ Himself. Christ. Is the radiance of his glory that now with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord what's happening to us we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another Charles Hodge the great Princeton theologian I actually used this quote when I was here before It's so good I thought I got to say it again it's just so good I want you to know I'm not senile and didn't forget that I had used it in the previous sermon. I remember. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, said this regarding our ability to to behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. He said, this vision, this vision is beatific. That is, it beautifies It transforms the soul into the divine image, transfusing into it the divine life so that it is filled with the fullness of God." End of quote. Hope is the essence of faith, and it's grounded in our already deliverance from sin's penalty and power, and actually empowers further transformation. And finally, it's focused on Christ. It's focused on His image. It's focused on conformity to His likeness. It's focused on His return when our bodies will finally be redeemed in the resurrection. It's the key. Biblical hope is the key to holiness, and finally to heaven itself, not to mention to happiness both now and forever. So here's the question. How can we promote hope in our lives? How can we fuel it in our souls? The Bible says, dear believer, that the Son has set you free. Yes, the Son has set us free, so we are free not only to hope in Christ. Praise God, that's grace, that we're now free to hope in Christ, but we're free to engage in those things that fuel that hope, that facilitate that hope. So what are some of those things? I've got three, and with these I close. First, praise. Praise by praising God for already freedom, the freedom we've already experienced for what Christ has already done. Would you turn with me to Psalm 47? I'm going to read this with a little bit of spirit, so hang in there. But I think it's what the psalm demands. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. dear believers jesus christ right now is sitting at the right hand of god he's upholding all things by the word of his power he has right now delivered us from sin's awful penalty he's delivered us from sin's awful power and he deserves this kind of effusive praise and what happens when i allow myself to praise him according to what he's due and you and i as Baptists have a problem here don't we we're a little tongue-tied and arm constrained aren't we we're singing these glorious hymns or it's hard to get an arm up isn't it you say well did you raise your arms today while you were praising no I didn't I'm a good Baptist <laughs> but when I read this Psalm. I think I should be a better Pentecostal. This song is beckoning me to get out of my comfort zone and to praise God with everything in my my being. To not just sing it with my lips and not just have a, a muted, raised affection in my heart. And I'm not, here, I'm not here criticizing your worship. I do think it's a matter of the heart. But when I read this psalm, I think I've got a long way to go before I'm ready to praise in heaven. Because I don't think there's going to be any muted praise. And why is that? Why is it that the psalmist commands us to sing praises, to shout, to dance, to play the horn and the lyre, to clang cymbals, yes, to clang resounding cymbals of praise for what Christ has already done? Because this is so unbelievable that you and I have been delivered from sin's penalty. We deserve to go to hell and God has delivered us. And we were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. God has made this wonderful transformation. And you see, when I am clear about that, and praising helps me to be clear about that, that just strengthens my hope. I'm clear. I've already been saved from this. How much more can I be sure that I'm going to be saved from the final, final death that awaits us? Yes, the resurrection from the dead is coming. How much more can I be sure that Jesus Christ will finally save those who eagerly wait for him, according to Hebrews chapter 9. So that's the first thing. Praise. I think praise facilitates hope. Praise for the already facilitates hope for the not yet. The second is prayer. A clearer and stronger hope leads to deep groaning for the groaning for the not yet freedom that Christ has promised and for which he is preparing us. Again, I I want to ask you, can you really get your, your head around the fact that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glories to be revealed? I know we would all say, yes, we believe that. But, like, how strongly do we believe that? How deeply do we believe that? Do we think there's this infinite chasm between even the worst struggles that we have here on Earth. And if you're like me, a typical American, you probably would say, I haven't certainly qualified for the most difficult life on Earth. When you look at the world and you think about what's going on, we've got it pretty good, don't we? And yet, we still face hard things. We face family alienation. We face... Health issues. We're all facing death. I mean the older I get, the more intimidating death really seems. You know, when I was in my stupid twenties, I thought I was invincible. Well, I'm clear that I'm not invincible now. And there's death hovering. The grim reaper, the Damocletian sword is dangling. There's real difficulties. There's death of loved ones. But it's not even worthy to be compared to what awaits us on that day when Jesus Christ comes back and raises us from the dead and completes our salvation. And if I really, if I really got my head around that, I would be groaning with creation and groaning with the Spirit. I would be praying, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And of course, as I do that, I'm strengthening that hope, aren't I? I'm I'm tuning into the fact that this hope, once realized, is like nothing I could even imagine. And I want it. And I long for it. I pray for it. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, suddenly the Lord's Prayer comes alive. Thy name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Yes. Thy will be done. That's what I want. That's what I need. Yes, Lord, come quickly. And then finally, living. Living strengthens that. I make my calling and election sure, Second Peter says, by living a holy life, by growing in these things. The more I grow in this direction, which leads to sanctification, the more I strengthen my hope for eternal life. And so by living as one who is free from sin's power and slaves to Righteousness. Praising, praying, living. These things help to fuel my hope. So where does that leave us? Well, we were once hopeless, but we've been born again to a living hope by faith. We've received the promise of an imperishable inheritance which is undefiled, will not fade away. And this hope is the essence of faith. It's grounded in and empowers our transformation, and it focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. And further to fuel it, we must engage in praise for the already freedom that we've experienced. We must engage in prayer and groaning for the not yet freedom to be experienced. And we must live out that freedom through daily righteousness. These three things fuel and strengthen our hope. So the key is hope. Biblical hope. Hope in the return of Christ and the completion of our salvation hope in the promise that one day one day the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and death shall be swallowed up in victory hope in the promise that one day we shall see our beloved bridegroom face to face And we shall be exactly like him, because we will see him finally, just as he is. Now there are some here today who, according to the Bible, are without hope. Most of you know who you are. There may be some who think they've come to faith, but really have not. That's true in every church. But regardless, if you're outside of Christ, your hope is like my hope regarding Ohio State and their future vision, their future victory. It's really just wishful thinking. It could come to pass, but there's no solidity to it whatsoever. In fact, when it comes to things like sin and death and hell, if you're here today and you're outside of Jesus Christ, all you can do is hope that they're not real and kind of try to wish them away or that somehow through some system of your own design, you might manage to qualify for whatever you think heaven is. But I want you to listen to me if you're here outside of Christ right now today you can exchange that unreliable that unverifiable that wishful hopefulness for a real hope for a solid hope for a hope that is undefiled and will not fade away a biblical hope that is based on the historical fact that Jesus Christ the eternal son of God came He died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again from the dead. And He says that anyone who believes in Him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. That's the promise. And so I implore you, I beseech you, to cast yourself on His mercies today, right now, and cease to live among the hopeless. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again to a living hope today. And dear believer, believer, I'm wondering if there's hopes that are competing against your hope in Jesus Christ. In other words, is there anything that you desire on earth or hope more for, or, and here's the litmus test, can't live without it coming true. If it doesn't come true, you can't live without that. Are there any of those things that transcend your hope in Jesus Christ? Maybe it's financial stability. Maybe you've built your whole life about being financially secure. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you're doing everything possible to maintain. Your hope is in maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one, a family member. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad. But if they constitute a core hope, They've become an idol. And as I said, the test is can you do without it? I've been married 42 years. And I admit, when I think about the possibility that I might outlive my wife, it's difficult to fathom. But my hope is not in my wife. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can do without her. You see what I'm saying? If you can't do without one of these things that you've allowed your heart to wrap around, I must call you to repentance because it's an idol. You must tear down that idol and replace it with the only hope that is undefiled and will not fade away. Biblical hope is the key to a holy and heaven-bound life and, yes, to a happy life now and forever. For biblical hope is the only hope that will not disappoint. Why are we unhappy? Why are we unhappy? Because our hopes aren't realized. We had hoped for this. We got that. We're not happy. But if our hope is fixed on Jesus Christ, there's no disappointment, at least none that really ultimately rains on our parade. And so I say to you, dear ones, fix your hope completely. As First Peter exhorts, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the key to a holy and heaven-bound life and to happiness both now and forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, forgive us for laying hold of such silly and transient hopes. And forgive us for making idols of those hopes that are good, but haven't been promised. And instead, give us the grace to lay hold of the hope that is Jesus Christ. Give us the grace, Father, to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at your Son's return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website, capitalcommunitychurch.com